This is Series 3, Episode 2, and I'm very pleased to be speaking with Moira Walsh, who has the book Earthrise through Pentrack Press. I'm sure we'll talk about that. But yeah, well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for asking. So I'd like to start by getting some backstory. I think we've got a few backstories here to mix together, because not only are you involved in poetry, but you also do copywriting and you do poetry translation, I think that's going to be a big part of this backstory. So if, if we get some idea of how you were drawn to become a poet. Well, that's a very good question, and I'll try to give a, a, a short and um, tasty answer. How was I drawn to become a poet? Well, in the most recent iteration of, of that answer, um, it was probably, it was early 2018, and uh, was actually my physician at the time, who's since become a friend and fellow poet, um, he suggested that I go to the library to meet my friends. I didn't know what he meant, and I kind of dismissed his recommendation. And to give a little backstory to the backstory, I was quite lonely at the time and um, not feeling my best. So he said, go to the library, find your friends. I said, that's not a place to meet people, the library. But he didn't mean, he didn't mean uh, physical humans he meant um to find my friends in the in the books so find them kindred spirits or tutelary spirits however you want to call it um in the literature section so um i had been dismissing something that he didn't actually mean he didn't mean go and you know find uh corporeal people to hang out with but find my find my uh people among the authors so um when I realized what he meant, um, <laughs> I did uh, find a lot of new and exciting authors, and one of them actually is his birthday is today. Um, he would be 103, and that's Charles Bukowski. And he was one of the first um, poets that I read in depth. Um, this was 2018, so I was about 39, not your typical, maybe not your typical Bukowski reader. Um, you know, female, 39, um, not a hard drinker. <laughs> um, but he, he really gave me permission to start to express myself in poetry. So I do owe him a great debt. And um, I just noticed that writing was a way for me to both digest difficult experiences in the past and in the present. Um, and also learn how to live in a more relaxed way, you know, with, with the attitude, you know, anything that happens to me can become a poem. So there really, really isn't anything bad in the sense of that I, that I want to uh, dismiss off the bat because it has the potential to become a poem either now or later. Uh, so that did give me a, a, quite, a, quite a relief as far as, you know, living my day-to-day -day life. Um, also taking a bunch of risks, um, personally, professionally. I was encouraged to read and write um, for medical reasons. <laughs> and then that gave me further courage to really do my own thing, live my own life. And well, the past five years have, have been a wonderful, a wonderful first chapter. So from beginning, restarting re my writing as an adult, um, at age 39, and then having my first chapbook published this year at age 44. So, I mean, I'm, I'm not harping on the age thing because I, I, I set great store by that or I'm a, a big uh, believer in numbers or whatever, but I just know that a lot of people my age and older feel like it's too late to start something new, and I want to, <laughs> I want to reach the good gospel of you can always start. Yeah, well, I say it's never too late to try anything else. I mean, I, I seem to be now a poet who's a publisher. <laughs> In 10 years' time, who knows? Maybe I'll be a painter. Who knows? I'd like to keep options open. For sure. I would not have, you know, six years ago, I would not have expected to um, be speaking with you today. Um, I wasn't aware of Pentarch Press. I wasn't aware that I was a poet. I wasn't aware that um, publishing was something I was interested in excited about and um you know just six years ago and none of this would have entered my wildest dreams not because i thought it was impossible but just because it wasn't within my scope of awareness so yeah. that is exciting to see what 
what happens and what you make of it. And life is full of surprises for sure. Yeah. Your, your Twitter handle is poets by necessity. So what does that mean? <laughs> What's the necessity? Well, it's actually from, uh, I love wordplay. So it actually started by, you know, from the, the, saying such and such by day and such and such by night so whatever people feel like they have two halves or polarities and express one at during the day and one at night or so and so in the streets and so and so in the sheets so um this was because i said translator by day and poet by and i didn't say really night no night doesn't really fit because it's something i do all the time. But I guess uh, also there was a, a bunch of, um, you know, psychic stress and, and pain and necessity to change. Um, so that writing really became something very, very healing for me personally. And that I guess is reflected in there too, but not to, not to make too much of that. Um, it's, it's, it's just a handle in one way. Um, but there is also Audre Lorde's, um, famous pronouncement that poetry is not a luxury. And so if it's not a luxury, it is a necessity, right? I mean, that's the subtext that I hear when she says that mm. or writes that. Um, so poetry is a necessity to me and uh, for me. And being a poet is a necessity as well for me. So I guess I, I started to say translator by day, poet by night, but I swerved at the end when we uh when we launched your book you talked about uh, the impact that uh, your depression has had on your writing i mean i don't know how much you want to talk about it here in this context but i mean i can say from my own experience uh, when, when i was in my late 20s i went through an extremely depressive clinically depressed period which i, I in some ways i handled well in some ways i handled badly one of the bad ways was that i did become an absolute shut-in mm. for about a year which is a terrible way to deal with it. Uh, I imagine when you're talking about going to the library being a good thing for you. Yeah, that's what I should have done. But I, I handled that very badly. But one of the things I did well was that I, this is when I got really invested in poetic constraints, uh, which I'd been dabbling with anyway. But just the distraction, I mean, let's keep it that simple, just the distraction of immersing yourself in something where you have to focus that hard. It, it takes you away from all the troubles that are going on in your mind. Absolutely. I'm not useful. The distraction element is, is uh, definitely um, something that I value highly when I'm in a depressed or a depressive episode. Um, I have been clinically depressed um, in episodes for more than half my life. So, and there have been hospitalizations twice and I should have probably had a lot more care <laughs> a lot sooner, but I thought I could self-optimize my way out of it. Um, and I have a long time, for a long time, I didn't um, admit to myself that this was you know, a cycle or a recurring event. Um, I always looked for causes outside and um, I moved a lot. I have had about 20 different addresses. I always thought it was something in the, something in the air or, just not having nice neighbors or whatever. Um, but um, yeah, it has been part of my life for a very long time. So this book actually, actually it was the constraints that helped me um, dive into that, that uh, layer of my existence, um, this recurring illness. And the, as I mentioned in, during the book launch, the constraint gave me a lot of freedom and safety uh, I think that also echoes some of what you said with the distraction or just being able to to um, lift away from from the very painful inner monologues or whatever is going on when you experience depression. I'm, not, I'm sure everyone has a slightly different experience um, or very different experience, but the constraints really helped me to, well, feel, feel safe and relax. And that allowed me to... Um, write about my illness for the first time. And it's especially exciting to me to hear that the first poem where I actually mentioned depression um, 
is a poem that almost every reader of the book has mentioned as especially moving or especially exciting or their favorite, um, which is the Nightshade at, Nightshade at Noon. Um, and it's just amazing to me that, you know, strangers picking up the book for the first time will, will mention this poem um, often. It's, it's probably 90% of, of the unknown to me readers will mention this poem or even share it online um, without, you know, speaking to me beforehand or um, conferring with each other. Uh, they will, they will home in on that. So yeah, they, the constraints helped me. But they gave me, they gave me a, a kind of freedom because it was clear I needed to, you know, fill that form. I needed to connect those dots. Um, I had something to hold on to. I had a, a guard, a guide, ra a handrail. Um, I had steps. I had, you know, stories of the house or however you want to say it. I needed to get from stanza A to stanza B. And um, I had a certain music or another type of constraint like the alphabet, <laughs> going backwards or forwards through the alphabet and really writing very freely. Um, I enjoyed it so much. I had never written in form before. Um, I just had something in the back of my mind from, from Borges who gave the advice to a new poet to write sonnets. I said, well, how about I give myself the advice to write 12 different forms in one month? So that's how the book began. It was during a, a challenge put on by Tupelo Press. And I had given myself the task of studying and writing at least 12 different poetic forms during one month. So <laughs> it, it still feels a bit overambitious, but it was very fruitful and I enjoyed it tremendously. That was probably the most important part of, of the experience. Yeah, definitely. That's the main thing, isn't it? With it you got to enjoy it. Yes, uh, it's but, art. But, <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> if we're not having fun with it, what's why are we doing it? I mean, if it's not giving us joy, why are we doing it? It's not going to pay yeah. the bills, right? Exactly. Yeah. We <laughs> <laughs> can talk about that in a minute. Oh yeah. <laughs> so, what, one of the things that stands out about your poetry is that you're quite willing to talk about dark thoughts. But at the same time, that then it's suddenly matched with playfulness and lighter thoughts. And I, I'm interested in this because, as I say, when when I was depressed and I was I was suicidal at this one point, when I, and I was writing palindromes and anagrams just to distract myself. But the palindromes and anagrams weren't about being sad because I just got lost in playing with words. So there I, I'm, you know, clinically depressed, writing a palindrome about pasta. You know, yeah. it's, it makes perfect sense to me <laughs> getting lost but also getting found i mean finding part of yourself that felt lost is probably how i would put it um the playfulness is something that's part of me just as much as the depression is and um that was probably the biggest insight in my lab during my last hospitalization when we uh did mo movement and music therapy as a group and the therapist was was a very um a very down-to-earth and funny person, uh, but also very astute. And she said, you know, when we were dancing around and obviously having a lot of fun, she said, this is just as much part of you as sitting in your room thinking suicidal thoughts. And how can you learn to strengthen this part of you? Um, you know, this was during the, the last week and she was giving us, giving us, um, she was encouraging us to look beyond the walls of the hospital and into our into our home lives and see how we could, you know, bring some of that joy to the center, to the fore, um, you know, that we were able to have fun and, and dance for a few minutes um, most days. That was something she said, you know, hold on to that um, and find ways to cultivate that in your, in your life after, after hospital. So the playfulness is, it's genuine. Um, and it's, I mean, I think it totally makes sense to me writing a palindrome of a pasta um, or whatever. I think people who've not um, struggled or experienced depression may find it totally strange. 
um, you know, to be saying, well, yes, I was suicidal from 10 to 4 to 10 to 4 today, but from 4 to 4.30, I forgot about all of those really horrible thoughts and was able to play with a bunch of words and make something. I think that's, you know, being able to make something, um, not to get too philosophical here, but it does give you proof of agency, right? You're making, you're forming something and it becomes separate from you. You can share it with others or not. You know, you can also write it in your journal and keep it to yourself forever. That's totally valid as well. But you have made something and it's come into being. Without you, it would never have, would never have appeared. So that, I mean, that's kind of something that's, <laughs> this, this thought is just coming to me, right? As we're speaking. But one thing that I'm almost always able to do, even if I'm in a very, very bad state, is to write postcards with just very banal or simple messages um, to a friend or relative. Um, but the fact of writing, the fact of physically putting words on the page or the card, as the case may be, and then having to leave the house, this is key, having to leave the house and go for a safe, short, defined distance drop it in the mail, and then come home again, that little tiny task of connecting and of making, of making and then connecting, um, that's something that I'm almost always able to do, and it always helps. So that's something I can hold on to. There's not much I can hold on to because every, every new episode um, brings a lot of uncertainty with it, <laughs> and I feel like it's never going to end. And whatever, you know, this gets very dramatic, um, dramatic and traumatic. But I can hold on to the fact that writing postcards always makes me feel better. And I can usually manage to do the whole process of you know, making, making or writing the postcard and putting a stamp on it and walking it to the mailbox. Yeah. And coming home. So that's um, this, this aspect of creating something. And if it's very, very simple and small, you know, just, just the fact that I'm able to put words on the page, always something I can turn to that experience of, of making, of having agency, of being able to choose what word to put next, what step to take after that. So no one is pressuring me. No one is expecting anything. Um, there's no time. Time sort of stops or ceases to be important. And... I'm in a very free space. And if it's just five minutes, you know, that's, that's an island that I treasure. I don't make a regular writing. I don't have a regular writing practice. I write when I need to. I can get a picture of the, the reasons why you write. I hate to say, well, it's therapeutic. but Well, it is therapeutic. That. There's there no, is. That's not a bad word for me. I mean, right. it's therapeutic. I mean, the thing people look down on writers who write because they have to write and who don't think about a reader. <laughs> yeah. But I, I honestly, I, I rarely think about the readers until it's, you know, until a poem is fairly, fairly finished. And then it's more of a question of how I want to share it as opposed to, you know, changing anything. <laughs> mm. I sometimes do write poems to people. Um, but then it's one specific individual, and it's it's always a, a mystery to me how other people can then, you know, find something in that. Um, of course, it delights me. But if I write to a specific individual and then decide to share it publicly, um, it often speaks to more and more varied uh, people than than the original and um, the original original recipient. So, yeah, it is therapeutic. And that doesn't mean it's navel gazing, right? I mean, that's well, that's the danger, isn't it? That if you say yeah. therapeutic, that's why I didn't want to say therapeutic. Yes, no, like, please it say sounds therapeutic. Very self indulgent. Let's let's reclaim the word therapeutic. Yeah, but my story is, you know, my story with Pentarig Press is I created a manuscript especially for the reading, um, the reading window that you had last summer, and um, I only submitted it to you. <laughs> and I wasn't very confident because not because I didn't love the poems I did love the poems but I didn't consider myself a formal poet um, or a metrical poet or whatever um, and I know there are a lot of people who've really studied this 
<laughs> studied the field and do nothing else. And I've only written about a dozen, well, let's say 20. Let's say 20, that sounds better. I've only written about 20 poems in a form or using a constraint. Um, and then I picked you know, a dozen of those to make a manuscript. Actually, it was 10, I believe, in the first manuscript I sent you. And it just happened. You know, I wasn't expecting it. I really wasn't. I just thought, well, I have these formal poems lying around. I really like them. Um, and, and the call from Pentarac Press said, you know, minimum 10 poems. I said, I can do that. It was a very, very relaxed and off-the-cuff mood I was in, you know, making that manuscript and sending it in and really not expecting anything. Um, for the first time, being able to really send and forget or fire and forget, as people may say. So, and the acceptance came, I was having a depressed episode and I wasn't really able to enjoy it. I was like, oh, well, okay, these poems, hmm, 10 of them, okay, that's my first book, nice. And then, you know, getting back out of depression, being able to, you know, celebrate, that came later in the year. Um, and the whole process was extremely, extremely laid back and relaxed. And at the same time, it, it opened a lot of doors, you know, just the fact um, looking for a cover image. Yeah. Being allowed to, you know, have input um, was, of course, a joy in itself. But then looking for a cover image that really matched or meshed with my feeling of the book as a whole and the title, which has a story behind it too. And then finding this image in Wikipedia. Yeah, well, well, if I can uh, chip in here. Yes, please. I, I, please I, suggest, I, I had suggested just using the, the famous Earthrise, I can't remember which astronaut it was, but everyone knows it. The, the astro astronaut the photo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, but, you, but you said, no, that's, you know, that's, let's think about other, <laughs> other ways, that, other things that the term Earthrise could be applied to. Right. But we did a bit of research. And I can't remember the name of the phenomenon that we ended up with. You will have to help me there. Well, it came by a frost heave, which is a phenomenon I think most most people are aware of. Um, when in people living in a culture where, or people living in a climate where frost happens, you know that the earth will will tear or crack and lift uh, as it freezes. And so I looked for frost heave images um, and found this amazing Arctic phenomenon called the Pingo, P-I-N-G-O. And the image spoke to me immediately. It was something very cold, but growing. So there was that tension or paradox, something that I found very fitting for the book. Um, and then the process of, you know, trying to find the photographer. Someone had uploaded it to Wikipedia, someone with a, a handle that I didn't recognize, um, wasn't able to find anything out about that um, individual until later. But I, I did find, you know, the metadata for the photo and was very happy to hear that the original photographer is still alive and <laughs> was very excited to speak with me. And we talked at great length for about an hour about what's what's visible in the photo, why it's never been published, why he's excited to have it published as the cover image of my little book. And anyway, that was, that was just one of the many experiences that um, started popping up as the book became more and more real, closer and closer to publication. Um, I started to feel responsible for it. I wanted this book to have a, have a good welcome and a good birth and uh, find its people. So I started, I started to do some outreach, you know, in-person outreach here in the city I live in and something I'd never done before because starting to write and really starting to share only, um, only um, gathered steam during the pandemic. So I had never actually been to a live poetry event and I walked down the street to the local Writers Association, and I said, hello, I have a book coming out. Can I do an event here? And they were just basically extremely supportive <laughs> from the first minute. They said, you know, if we're, if we're allowed to put it in our calendar, 
then you don't need to pay rent because then we're the host. And whatever. I was like, that doesn't make any sense, but yes, please, let's do this. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's something also that I probably wouldn't have had a occasion to do or enough motivation to do if I hadn't had that book, you know, coming over the horizon to just walk in there and say, I'm an author. I live here. Can we work together? So things like that, just those doors opened and I kept walking through them as they opened. And um, I did actually get money for the first time, really real money um, for the reading I did here locally. Um, that's also another wild story, but that was the first time I earned money from poetry as well. So <laughs> it's just been one new experience after another. Well, I hope that's, uh, I hope that's uh, going to lead to more opportunities to do <laughs> readings and, and, uh, and perhaps elsewhere throughout the world. Because uh, you're, in, you're in Germany. I'm in Germany. I'm in southern Germany, and I'm originally from Michigan, so the northern part of the United States, Great Lakes states. How would you describe your bilinguality? Are you pretty much as good with German as English? or I would say pretty much. Um, my mother's German. My father's American. So I grew up speaking both languages from you know, infancy. Um, I did grow up going to school in English, in American English. Um, and I'm, after school, after you know, finishing 12th grade, I spent a year in New Zealand. And I lived in Canada, and so I have a, a, a couple of different Englishes that have uh, formed me. But German has always been right there as well. So I would say it, I feel stronger in English, um, just because I've had more schooling in English. I've, when I became a translator, I decided to work exclusively German to English. So I'm reading a lot of German every day, um, but I'm only writing. Yeah, that makes sense. Strange, strangely enough, though, um, there are certain poems that come through, <laughs> not to get too mystical, but there are certain poems that come through and they demand German. And that's something that I've struggled to put into words, funnily enough. But um, sometimes the experience of a poem is actually not in a language. It's in a speech or it's in a feeling, it's in a rhythm, it's in a music, but it then chooses the language that it wants to go into. Um, so some poems arrive in German, others arrive in English, others are mixtures. Um, and one of the great joys I've had in um, also collaborating with other poets is translating poetry, which is, <laughs> it's an extreme sport. It demands everything and more, and then when you think it's, it's constrained, not... isn't it? Do you think it's, <laughs> it's it's it is constrained poetry? It is constrained in a on a level that's, um, yeah. I don't. I, I haven't thought about that. That's a good question. Well, I'll is, tell you what, what I'm thinking about is trans. I, yes, tell me, tell me. I'm I'm thinking about. There were two famous. I can't. Like, I should have made more notes. I can't remember the name of the places. <laughs> But there are two translate two famous translations of Baudelaire. Mm -hmm. uh, one that's it's almost like it really divides opinion because one of them, the essence of the language is captured really well and the imagery is really close, but there's no attempt really, or there's very little attempt to preserve the meter. Mm. Whereas in the other translation, the meter is kept very strictly and maintained very well. But with that, a lot of the original imagery and, and sentiment is distorted. So and probably it, feels like it doesn't. It, sorry, probably it doesn't sound as natural then either. You know, I'm expecting if I if keeping the meter at the expense of imagery, maybe some of the language will feel a little bit off. Possibly. Yeah. So, it's, but it's tricky because, but then with the other one, the the rhythm is off. Mm. So, that's what I mean by, uh, I suppose, what you might mean by saying it's an extreme sport. And, and it's what I mean by saying it's it's a constrained art because you're making the same sort of compromises that you have to make when you're doing constrained poetry. Like you don't, you can't, I mean, so many times I've written, for example, a palindrome thought, oh, if only I could change that word to this, it would be so much better. <laughs> if only I could superimpose a vowel here 
and, yeah. and make and then make the reader choose which vowel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, any translation is an art, and by that I mean it demands a lot of the translator. It's almost a physical exertion to get behind the word, the literal level, and to try to reach the thought, the motivation, the feeling behind that word or that sentence or that paragraph or that whatever unit you're able to translate at a time. And that's the thing when people say, well, you know, your job will soon be done by, done by an algorithm. I'll say, well, yes, for things like things that I no longer translate, like catalogs or very technical, very rigid types of text, probably, and good riddance to those jobs. Um, but what my clients appreciate when I translate is that I do try to reach that level or layer of the thought, the feeling, the motivation behind the words. And um, it does, you know, it does also require quite a bit of conversation with the original author. Um, and I am translating mostly marketing, uh, advertising. But even there, you know, there is an original author and I'll talk to him or her or them and say, you know, if I were to translate it this way, and this is, of course, not always possible. Sometimes there are time constraints and then I just have to make, make my best judgment. But in an ideal world, I will go to the original author and say, I'm planning to say this in English. How does that strike you? Is there something I'm missing? Or I feel like the German has another layer. I'm not catching the cultural reference. Please explain. I may have to use a different metaphor in English, but I want to get to the emotion that you're conveying and I'm not, <laughs> not getting it. Um, so what I'm saying is that's already an art form, an art form that I make money with. Um, and it doesn't often feel like art, but it is, it does have that art muscle in there somewhere um, of trying to reach through the medium and connect with another consciousness, be it human or transpersonal, or in the sense, in the, in the case of writing, uh, translating a poem, to try to reach, <laughs> this sounds super, super arrogant, but I'm gonna say it anyway, cause it's an attempt, a striving. I try to reach the level, the layer of the poet's intuition and then take as much as I can of that and transport, ferry across that image, that feeling, that thought into English. So um, translating poetry is, is um, probably the most difficult type of translation. I'm not going to qualify that. Translating poetry is the most difficult mm -hmm. type of, or the poetry is the most difficult material to translate. Um, and it's always an interpretation. So yeah, yeah I was going to say, never, there's, there's so many different things to think yeah. about at the same time. Yeah. yeah. And um, I mean, I often live with a poem for years and still discover new things. So at what point am I qualified to translate it? Mm -hmm. I need to just work with what I have available. And that means uh, my poetic sensibility, the um, state, my stage of comprehension, you know, I'm probably never gonna get <laughs> to that level of uh, po poetic inspiration um, and actually meet the, po the poem where it came from. Um, but I'm going to, you know, die trying. Some some translations I've worked on, you know, off and on. And again, these are not not filling my fridge or paying my rent. But some of these I've worked on, on and off for three years, probably. And there's one that I feel very strongly about. And really, I feel like it's, I feel like it's a pretty good translation. Um, it does pick up the meter. It does pick up some of the, the sound music 
as far as you know, re repetition of vowels, repetition of consonants, reflections, you know, sh the longer words having this pattern of vowels repeated. And um, the lines are about the same length, which is <laughs> not easy. Uh, German and English tend to run quite different lengths. And it's a good poem. The translation is also a good poem. So I feel like I did a good job. Um, the poet is very happy, which is probably the, the gold star um, of translating poetry. And I'm, I'm exclusively translating contemporary poets because I want to have that conversation and I want them to uh, give me their blessing before I publish it. But this little poem that's, you know, very precious to me that I've worked on for years. Um, I've sent it out for years. I've sent it to really amazing places that you know are happy to consider translation, poetry and translation. And I've you know clarified that this is you know it's the blessing of the author. He is alive. He's given me full permissions. Blah blah blah. Nobody wants to. Publish. Nobody wants to publish it. And other translations where I feel like, well, this one is kind of half cooked. The poet is still happy. You know, it's, it's not half cooked in their view, but I feel kind of like, well, mm, the original is much better. <laughs> those, those have been getting picked up. So I don't think yeah, that, I think um, I don't think we pay enough attention to the role that randomness plays mm. in, in pretty much everything in our lives. <laughs> Yeah, and the and the and the um, role or the aspect of um, patterns. You know, I think I, I'm so I'm always looking for a pattern. So I want explanations. I want to. I mean, I wrote a, wrote a poem about this. It's going to come out this fall. Um, really making peace with some of the more 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 disturbing symptoms of my depression which I, I sometimes call a hot depression because it's very agitated. And um, one of the symptoms is starting to have thoughts that are not rational. Um, you know, feeling responsible for things that are clearly not my doing or within the scope of my influence even. Oh yeah, um, feeling guilty for things you haven't done. Feeling, feeling yeah, guilty, yeah. but also feeling, for example, when I was in hospital, there were, there were two arson, um, two instances of arson and I was home for a night on both evenings when there was arson on the ward. You know, when, when the patient was burning things, um, trying to set the, their room on fire or themselves or whatever. Um, I was not there on both nights. <laughs> and making some kind of peace, I don't want to say friends, becoming friends with, because that sounds too soft and easy. But making some kind of a piece with the um, the symptom of these disturbing, irrational thoughts. Um, you know, this poem, writing, writing this poem was a big step towards that because at the end I said, you know, if I were still delusional, seeking, now wait me, watch me not be able to quote my own poem. If I were still delusional, seeking connection at any cost, I would feel responsible for my incendiary absence. That's the final stanza of the poem. And it's like, wow, I'm actually not delusional anymore. And isn't it funny, or at least ironic, um, that I would, I would have felt responsible, um, you know, for those fires starting because I wasn't there. Mm. <laughs> so that's, uh, I think you might need to cut that whole part. <laughs> <laughs> your, it's your call. It's your I'm, I'm keeping it in unless you uh, unless you send me um, an email tomorrow saying sure. to you. But I'm like not even able to remember what I wrote about it, and I'm like, this is so this is so important. This was a turning point in my life, and I can't even quote my own poem. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so um, translation, poetry, poetry, translation. Yeah. Well, I do. I have a question to ask you, which might. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to ask this because no, please might... ask every, every there. What do you say? There's. The only dumb question is the unasked question or something. Yeah. yeah something like that. that. Something like I that. Know that's, uh, people might think I, I should know this, but I honestly don't. And you'll have to tell me uh, how meter works in German. 
how meter works in and, and how similar it is to <laughs> well for this i would actually have to study meter in german to be able to give you okay. a, a ah, give you so, a, so it wasn't a stupid question it was, it not, was a a stupid good question. Question. not a stupid question um i do believe that it this is me giving a totally off the cuff and improvised answer i do believe it's very similar stressed and unstressed syllables instead of long and short yeah okay i do believe it's very similar but the um the feeling of german is very different and things like where the stresses tend to be in nouns and verbs and compound nouns and the whole thing about endless compound nouns um, what that can do or how it can affect a poem um, that's a very good question. I will look into it. Okay, I, I felt, <laughs> see, I felt like I was being stupid, but it was a good no, question. No, now, now you're making me feel stupid. No, just kidding. Um, I've actually, I feel like I'm just, I am just at the beginning of my studies of meter and form. Um, I never went to university, or I did go, but I, wasn't able to finish more than a year because of the depression. Um, so I'm teaching myself a lot or finding people to teach me, um, reading a lot and comparative meter is something that's gonna be on my list, things to look into. Well, I expect a year from now that you'll have yeah. two perfectly metered sonnets that say the same thing, one in English, one in German. Well, my name is not Pedro. <laughs> I'm not sure how he says his last name. Poitevin? Uh, I, I say Poitevin, and, and Poitevin. it's okay with that. But I, okay. I think it might, I think originally it must be Poitevin because it's French, but he's not French. So, right. So we're kind of at liberty to what's your his name? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I, I get, when I think about people like you and, and Pedro, I get extremely jealous that I'm just this typical monolingual Englishman. <laughs> I know I've got little bits of Welsh, little tiny bits of Spanish. You know more than a bit of yeah. Welsh. Yeah, yeah, I've seen you do Welsh things. But I, I'm not fluent in, uh, not anywhere near fluent in, in, in any, but I'm not even fluent in this language now. <laughs> well, you're a musician, though. I mean, that gives you, that gives you a... That's a language, yeah. That's a language. Come on, come on. And just the permutation of, of variations in music. I feel like that's something I experience in your poetry. I feel like you are definitely at least bilingual, so take heart. Yeah, well, thank you. <laughs> uh, actually, I, uh, yeah, this uh, leads back to something something you said in uh, during your book launch. Again, you have to remind me who 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 staged the book launch for us. That was Holly Wren Spalding of Poetry Forge in the U.S. And it was a fantastic event. I really enjoyed it. And you said something amazing. You say you said lots of amazing things, but one of one of the really nice things you said was that you feel like with your poetry, there are as many different versions of each poem as there are readers of that poem, because yeah. everybody creates their own poem from it, and I think that's a really nice sentiment, and I think on the technical level that's also true. When you when you hear people read poems, it's always you get that sort of moment of huh, okay, that's how that's how you're reading it. And and I think you could view this technically because we all stress syllables differently. So even if we're reading I am Vic Pentameter, some people will make the, the stress syllables longer than other people will. Or uh, I mean, did you just say iambic? Because I say iambic. <laughs> there are quite a few words in, in British English and American English. There's quite a few interesting shifts there. Um, well, there, there are syllable shifts. I mean, I think I mentioned this on the podcast before, that Bernard's pastel toupee, I can't remember the rest of it, Bernard's pastel toupee ballet's bidets, something like that. <laughs> Which, But if you say it's in, in American English. Bernard's pastel toupee? I, I didn't catch the other ballet, word. Ballet's bidets. Ballet's bidets. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the stress is reversed on all those words. reversed, yeah. Yeah. Well, I do. I, I, it's beyond, it's, it's more than, it's stronger than a belief. It's, um, it's an experience and it's a hope 
as well. And it's a way to take some of the pressure off. Um, you know, recognizing that I'm writing something, but that the person who chooses to read it is bringing it to life in their own consciousness and possibly in their own voice. I mean, that's always the most exciting. Um, this is something you may not know, but I invited a bunch of poets I admire to read at this book launch, and I hadn't, I'm, I had not heard them read their poems. So I, the, the task or the, the uh, request was, please pick one or maximum two of your favorite poems from the book that you would like to read. And I didn't um, listen to these people to these poets reading their selections beforehand. And for me, that was also a, a milestone or a, a threshold, better word, a threshold to cross, to really say, well, these poems are now out in the world. People are going to be reading them in their own minds or with their own voices, bringing all their experiences to bear on, on and through that poem. Uh, it's really not up to me anymore. So this is a, a kind of, it was a dare to my, it, it was something I dared to do. And, and it was a little difficult at first to let go enough and just say, you know, these people, I, I trust them. I like them. Um, I'm sure they'll read it well. Uh, but there were, of course, surprising moments for me. Um, <laughs> as, you were, as, as you know, there was one poem I realized there was a word missing. And it had escaped my attention. It was missing in the original manuscript I sent you last year. <laughs> it was missing in every version since. Um, there was, would have been no way for you to know that a word was missing. And I didn't know a word was missing until I heard Holly read the poem. Well, it, it, it reads just, it reads quite smoothly without it, doesn't it? That's the thing. Well, it didn't, to me, it jarred extremely. So I, I almost winced because... Um, I realized, I mean, the, the poem, when I read it or listen to it in my own mind, it has that word and it's now been um, corrected in the second printing. So yeah. anyone who buys a book now will never know that there was actually a word missing. In the well, they can try to guess which word. <laughs> I'm not going to say it um, because as you kindly said, it does also work without the word. But that was a moment of really a jarring moment. Um, because the rhythm was a totally different rhythm than I had always intended. The word had always been in my mind and it just never made it onto the page in that original manuscript version. Um, and then, so when Holly read it, I, I noticed. Um, and another reader read my very undefined, and by that I mean undefined syntax, um, this, this sonnet without punctuation. And she put words together that, in my version, um, didn't belong together. But again, that was an exciting moment and a threshold moment where I said, well, what's on the page doesn't mean the same thing to everyone, um, even, even syntactically. Um, <laughs> leaving punctuation out, you know, what, do I, what, what else can I expect? <laughs> but it, those are just two moments that are still, still fresh in my mind. There were many more. Um, mostly it was a delight to hear, um, was it five different voices? I guess with me, six different voices reading um, poetry, poems from the book, um, and, and then sending the, sending the book out into the world. I felt, it felt really appropriate to not have a rehearsal. And uh, one reader, I'm not going to mention which, um, approached me and asked me to read the poem they had chosen. And I said, no. <laughs> I said, no, I want to hear your version. I'm glad everyone. It wasn't me. It wasn't me. No, 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 no. I'm just glad everyone was, was game to uh, play along with the dare. And it was, it was beautiful. It was beautiful. And at the same time, it was, um, yeah, a threshold moment, realizing, you know, there's no way I can control how people understand the poems. I cannot stipulate how they're going to emphasize or even stress or even understand uh, the words that are on the page. And um, they have their own life now. Yeah. 
Well, I, I enjoyed reading them, and uh, it was a it was a great event. Uh, we, we've been talking for just over an hour, but the, when we were preparing for this podcast, I asked you if there's anything you want to talk about, and there are a couple of things we haven't <laughs> touched on. And now, what's again? Get- it was it was <laughs> not a re- it wasn't um it wasn't a re- it wasn't a contract, so. I know. I was to talk about everything. Uh, okay. I was intrigued because it was just, it was quite a short list you gave me, and, and it, like each item in the list was quite short, and I, I didn't know how to interpret them exactly. So I'm interested uh, when you talk about realistic idealism. Oh yeah. Hmm. Well, I had a day today that was basically realistic idealism. Well, I've mentioned the fact that at least at this point in my life, art does not pay the bills. And I don't have an expectation that that will change. Um, one of my heroes, who was also at the at the book launch, Ken Mikulowski, he said, "You know, between the two of us, my wife and I had three ways of not making a living." <laughs> <laughs> um, so he was a printer and publisher and poet, and she was a printer and visual artist. So my day job is translation, and it's gone more and more in the direction of copywriting as well because strangely enough a lot of german companies want or need uh, communications in english so most of those will then be sent to their um, subsidiaries and then translated into local languages so the english acts as a bridge Um, and because i'm fluent in german i can understand the task and then write write the advertising copy in english so that's something I do all day, three days a week. And I'm extremely lucky and grateful to myself <laughs> and the circumstances and my lovely clients um, for making that possible that I really work hard and do things that I might not 100% believe are the most honorable and noble tasks in the history of the universe. And they're not using all of my faculties and they're not necessarily making the, the world more beautiful. Um, but with those three days of office work, I can then spend the other four days a week in my garden with the people who matter to me, taking care of children, helping on a farm, um, and also recovering from the three days of office work. Honestly, there's, it's very very exhausting and potentially soul crushing to be working in one way creatively, but under a lot of time pressure and with very, very narrow materialistic goals in mind, like sell more cars. Mm -hmm. Um, So I would say realistic idealism is, um, you know, not mourning the fact that I'm not making art all day and um, I'm, constrained by the society I live in, by the time, the era I live in, um, by my lack of generational wealth, by my lack of um, assets or, you know, house or whatever, you know, I live, I'm a renter, um, I live in a city and I need to support myself. So um, I guess, I guess, the way I'm, what I'm calling realistic idealism <laughs> is, you know, making some compromises. I mean, of course I could say, you know, I don't want to work for the auto industry. It's evil. It's terrible. Um, I don't have a car, never have, never will. Um, I bike everywhere or walk or, you know, if, if I desperately need a car, I have a car sharing membership um here in the city it's very nice you can go and rent a car for a day it's wonderful um so i could say you know that's not in line with my values to be working for the car industry but it allows me to work three days a week because it does pay very well um so of course it's it's very easy to you know find fault with that and i've been very conflicted about it um but I'm starting to relax more. <laughs> um, there is value in having a bit of a stable life. Um, one of my mottos is beautifully boring. Um, that's what I'm aiming for, for my daily life. And by that, I mean, you know, 
not being in crisis all day, every day, and not worrying about you know where to buy the cheapest food so that I you know can afford to pay rent. Um, I've had enough of those years, and um, you know also having a bit more resource than I need as far as money, um, so that I can also visit my ne newborn nephew or help some friends who are in desperate need. Or, you know, I think that's the most difficult part of not having any money is to not be able to give any money or to share material things. Mm -hmm. um, so I, yeah, I'm rambling. <laughs> that was fine. Uh, we, uh, in the previous episode, which you won't have heard yet because it hasn't aired, uh, I spoke with uh, Richard Capener from Hempress, mm. and we talked about publishing. And one of the things I think I mentioned that I brought it up was, again, this is a conflict between realism and idealism, that when you start a press, you don't really care if books aren't selling because you're so excited that everything's, you're being creative, you, you're forming a community. And then a few years into it, you start to think, oh, I, you know, I better start selling some books here. <laughs> because suddenly the practical side becomes more important and you don't get quite as much excitement from just making the books yet you think actually i'm going to have to sell them if this is going to continue so it starts to it goes from this this great hobby that you're passionate about suddenly into something that you have to take seriously as a business so that's sort of that's kind of that neg negative spin on what you're saying i suppose but uh, I'm, I'm not sure i think it's just another another aspect or another um another image of of that polarity or whatever you want to call it um the enthusiasm of starting something new it does it does um it does have a, a lot of power and then at some point things need to get more practical and maybe even you know i i've followed a little bit along with um with you saying you know authors really need to work on promoting their book I mean, I remember you getting some backlash on Twitter. Maybe not just some, <laughs> a lot. Um, oh, all the time. Well, well, used to it yeah. I see. That's the thing. I'm, I'm very, very wary of those online spaces. For, for one of that's one of the reasons. Just a lot of negativity spewing. But I remember, you know, just following along a bit, um, you know, very superficially, and and you saying things like, "Well, authors need to also, um, you know." Do, do marketing, um, promote their book, um, invest in getting it out there. And Which you have, that, you have. Well, for me, that feels you, very natural. You've gone I above wanted, and beyond, really. Well, I took it as permission to really start connecting with people. So I would, I walked down, I mentioned the authors, um, the authors association. I also walked the other direction to the local bookstore. And I walked in there and I said, I have a book. And they knew me because I've, you know, I'm a good customer there. Um, and they said, we wouldn't, the, uh, the owner said, you wouldn't believe how many people walk in here and say, I have a book. And he was very blasé about it. But then <laughs> I feel like the book really gave me permission to be a bit cheeky and also, yeah, try new things, basically. So I saw this elderly gentleman with, you know, a new attitude. I just said, well, I'm going to try to win him over. He was very blasé. Like, selling books is much harder than writing books. <laughs> I thought of you. <laughs> and, um, and I said, well, would you like to read it? Here's a copy. It's a gift. Let me know when I can come back and talk about it with you. And he was very taken aback in a positive way. He said, oh, 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 well, uh, my English isn't very good. I said, that doesn't matter. Just have fun with it. And I handed him the book and he said, come back in a week. And I came back a week later and he said, I, you know, I went online and I saw you have a reading tomorrow. I'm coming to the reading. And if any books are left after the reading, I will sell them or at least display them <laughs> in my bookshop. Uh, with, then it was my turn to be taken aback and shocked, honestly. I said, wow, that's wonderful. Thank you so much. And he did come to the reading. He was one of the 15 people who came. There were 15 chairs, and they were all full. So it was perfect. I didn't want um, a huge crowd, and it was a very, very small space. It was beautiful and perfect. 
And uh, he came to the reading and he said, I see you have some books left over. Um, please bring me five. And I like the way you've packaged them. So just bring me five packaged books. I said, I will do. And they're on his way. Yeah, I won him over. But it was really the book that did it. So I was just a conduit. And he said, um, like he was really talking bookseller lingo with me at this point. I mean, it was all in German. But he basically said, if any of them move, I will send you an email and you can restock. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, we both agreed. We're not going to expect any sales, but it's just a thrill for me to have my book of English poetry in a German bookstore with its own little display. He made a little display for it. American poet who lives in Stuttgart. Um, this is her first book. You know, this was kind of, it was all in German, but this was his, his signage. And so I have my own little display in the bookshop. I feel I'm on top of the world. Um, just one of the many happy stories that have come about since June. Yeah. Well, I'm really pleased that you've enjoyed the experience. I, I've really enjoyed working with you and everything that, you know, everything around it, like the, the book launch we talked about and discovering about Pongos. Have I forgotten the name? Ping, pingos. Pingos. pingos, pingos. <laughs> I'm really bad at that. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. You can you can I read up. Change on... the vowels in, in words. Well, that's also... probably one of your not so secret talents. <laughs> <laughs> making new words of old from old or making new whatever. Never mind. We can cut that part. <laughs> <laughs> Pingos. I'll cut. Well, I'll just say Pingo. pingos, and it's, it will sound good. Yeah. Yes, you can say. Learning about pingos, <laughs> I'll say very good. You remembered the word. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's been good. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to ask or say? Only I, I don't know. We didn't discuss this in advance. Uh, would you like to do a reading, or or would you rather not? Let's go oh. the way. I would like to do a reading. That's the answer you were hoping for. And I was not expecting it, but I will read. I would love to read the unpunctuated sonnet I mentioned earlier. Okay. All right. So this is second to last in Earthrise. Unpunctuated at the edge of sleep. This loving look repay, O oh friend, O oh frond, a favor grant, unanswerable gift, our stratospheric sapphire ribbon bond, faded far mountain, wayside blossom rift, scent of falafel, garlic, lakeside spree, swig of sweet bitter lemon, rousing hope, peace in the evening, dream puffs, aminui, dawn chorus, exaltation, periscope, you know it's true. We have all this and more. Rogue language of the stars. Santana tears. Fine ratus donkey stationary store. We whittle courage to poke holes in fears. Time, genes, and disappointment cannot measure the depth of chosen kindness or its pleasures. One of many great poems in that book. Thank you. Well, thank you. Uh, so a final question, just I want to know what you're doing now. What's what's coming up? Well, I do have a contract for a bilingual collaborative chapbook due out in April of 2024 with Femme Salve Press or Femme Salve Books, I believe it is. Animal House Press has an imprint um, of rescued manuscripts. And there's a whole story behind this manuscript, which was accepted for publication and then the press ghosted us. So Fam Salve rescued us. Um, that's co-authored with by Wilfried Schubert and it's German and English, fully translated. So if you don't know any German, you'll be fine. You can still enjoy all of it. Um, and that's a, three sequences of longer collaborative poems. And they've actually all been previously published. So they're collected in the chapbook for the first time. And the title is Do Try This at Home. And that's a <laughs> pandemic title um, because we were hoping and still do hope that people will try this at home when they see what we're doing there in that book. 
And then I have a bunch of other manuscripts. It's kind of a running gag that I have um, 10 manuscripts looking for homes. And I don't think it's actually 10 at this point. I think it's more like six. Um, but I keep refining them and some of them get retired. Um, if I'm no longer very excited about them, they'll get retired and yeah, maybe composted or recycled. The, po the individual poems are almost all standing the test of time, at least in my heart and mind, but the manuscripts, some of them are, are no longer up to my standards. So they get retired and uh, no longer sent out. So at the moment, I'm just sending out to places that don't charge fees, um, no contests, just open reading periods, and seeing where that takes me. Yeah, well, good luck with it. Moira, thanks so much for doing this. It was lovely to talk to you and go over all these things. I'm really, really pleased that we published Earth Rise. It's been a great addition to uh, the Pentract bookstore, which I hope people visit. So, yeah, thank you. Thank you, Anthony, and thank you for inviting me on my first ever interview. Everybody buy Earthrise. It's really yes. good. Plus, you support an excellent small press.